Since its uh, inception in 2008, the Institute for Economics and Peace put out a, uh, an evaluation of, uh, it's about 163 nations around the world, evaluating them on their level of violence or to say it positively, on their level of peacefulness. And they put out every year this thing called the Global Peace Index. Uh, again, evaluating countries as to their level of peacefulness. Well, guess what? There's not a whole lot of peacefulness in the world. Uh, year by year, evidence is showing in this Institute of, uh, of Economics and, uh, and Peace emphasize that uh, Peacefulness is elusive. In fact, it is growingly violent in our world today. Middle East, of course, ranks as the highest. Syria is the nation with the highest level. And if you're interested, of the 163 nations uh, evaluated this past year, the United States ended up 114. Um, not much has changed in the world. 2,800 years ago, the world was also in turmoil, and the hot spot was also the Middle East, right in that same region. The Assyrians were the world-dominating power, and they were wrecking havoc upon the world scene, murdering, pillaging, conquering people groups all around them, gobbling up huge land masses as they went a-conquering. One little area that seemed to be surrounded and a little bit protected was this little nation called Judah, its capital, Jerusalem. And yet, that was about to change. They were God's chosen people, and yet God's patience had run out, and judgment was about to come. We've begun a study of the book of Isaiah, and I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah again this morning. As we saw last week in the very opening chapter of the book, God levels a lawsuit against his chosen people. Chapter 1 is written like, like a formal lawsuit. Charges are being brought against God's people, three in particular. God is condemning them for their perversion of their relationship to him as a, as a parent and a child. You're my son and you've rebelled against me. The second charge is a charge against the perversion of worship. They have twisted and deformed worship, holy worship before God. It's been turned inward and not outward towards God. And thirdly, the charge was they have perverted social justice. Widows and orphans are neglected. There's blood on the hands of the people, and God is condemning them, and he's bringing a formal lawsuit against them. He does this all through this prophet Isaiah, who for almost 60 years will be a prophetic voice communicating God's passion, God's heart, and at least for the first 39 chapters, God's judgment against his people. Now, this morning, <clears throat> that prophetic voice continues in chapter 2, this, this theme of condemnation and judgment. And I want to begin reading in verse 6. 
Isaiah chapter 2, verse 6. For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east, and they are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they strike bargains with children of foreigners. Their land also has been filled with silver and gold, and there's, not, there's no end to their treasures. Their land has also been filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land has been also filled with idols, and they worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. And so the coming... Uh, the common man has been humbled and the man of importance has been abased and do not forgive them. Enter the rock, hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of the man will be abased. The, the loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts, verse 12, the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning. There's a day coming against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. The prophet Isaiah is saying, look at your opulence, look at your wealth, look how you have amassed in your pride, in your hubris. Look how you have increased your chariots and your gold and, and yet you have forgotten God. And there's a day of reckoning coming. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. The pride of man will be humbled. The loftiness of man will be abased. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves of rocks, into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and of the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. In that day, verse 20, Men will cast away to the moles and to the bats their idols of silver, their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord, the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? Judgment's coming. A day of reckoning. In that day, the earth is going to tremble and shake. Run to the rocks. Hide yourself in the cliffs. For the pride of man will be brought down. God alone will be exalted in that day. Isaiah's prophetic voice continues in that same vein in chapter 3, verse 1. For behold... The Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread, the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the warrior, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder. Verse 3, the captain of 50 and honorable men, the counselor and the expert artisan, the skillful enchanter. I will make these mere lads their princesses, and capricious children will rule over them. The people will be oppressed, each one by another, and each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder and the inferior against the honorable. All chaos is going to break loose. Leaders will, will be gone. They'll resort to, as it were, ch childlike leaders. 
to rule over them because there'll be no one left. Leaders and soldiers, warriors, prophets and seers, they're all going to be gone. All their resources are going to be wiped away. God is going to remove everything that they have been trusted in, everything that, they, that has elevated themselves in their own hubris and pride, and it's all going to be wiped away. And they're going to turn on each other. Why is all this going to happen? Why is the judgment of God going to fall? Verse 8 of chapter 3, For Jerusalem has stumbled, Judah has fallen, because their speech and their actions are against the Lord, to rebel against His glorious presence. The expression of their faces bears witness against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. They don't even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Again, pride. We don't need you, God. We can go it alone. They become like Sodom in their utter sinfulness and their wickedness. In fact, they don't even conceal it. They're so proud of their own sin. Judgment is going to come. The, the theme of injustice is heard again. Jump down to verse 13. The Lord arises to contend. To, he stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. And then in verse 16, he specifically targets, interestingly, the, the wealthy women of the society who have profited by the, by the evil prideful gains of their husbands. Verse 16 of chapter 3, Moreover, the Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are proud, and they walk with heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and the, the tinkle of the bangles on their feet, therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. And in that day... The Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets and headbands and crescent ornaments and dangling earrings and bracelets and veils and headdresses and ankle chains and sashes and perfume boxes, amulets and finger rings and nose rings and festal robes and auto tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, veils. He's going to strip it all away. In verse 24, now it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, there'll be a rope. Instead of well-set hair, plucked out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. And your men will fall by the sword, your mighty ones in battle. And her gates will lament and mourn, and deserted she will sit on the ground for seven women, chapter 4, verse 1, will take hold of one man in that day because there will be no men left hardly. And they'll say, we will eat our own bread. We'll, we'll wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. And the pride of these opulent dressed women will be brought down and abased. Judgment was coming. God's people had forsaken him. 
and their pride and their greed, their corrupted heart. We don't need you, God. And judgment was coming. Now let's look at these passages just a little deeper because seven times in chapters 2, in this passage, 2 through 4, there's a phrase that's repeated seven times. It's that little phrase, in that day. Go back to verse 11 of chapter 2. The proud look of a man will be abased, the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 12, for the Lord of hosts will have a day. My translation says we'll have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty. Look at verse 17. The pride of man will be humbled. The loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 20, in that day men will cast away to the moles and bats their idols of silver and gold. Chapter 3, verse 18. In that day the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets and headbands and so on and so forth. Chapter 4, verse 2, in that day. Now, Isaiah is giving us a time indicator, a future time. In that day. He's pointing to a specific time in the future, and all this is, is future tense. In that day, the Lord will do this. In that day, the Lord will be doing this. Something future to Isaiah as he's writing this is going to happen. Judgment will fall. The hand of God, the wrath of God will come against his people in a specific time period, in that day. Now, there's something we have to understand about prophetic writing in the Old Testament. We've mentioned this before over the years, but as a prophet would write, uh, oftentimes, um, he would see events like, like looking at two mountain peaks that are, are all put together. You, you see events like looking at one mountain peak, and then you, you glance ahead and you see the other mountain peak, but you don't see the valley of maybe centuries of time in between. It all runs together. As an Old Testament prophet would prophesy, he would speak of coming events, and maybe he was, maybe he was not aware of the, the valley of time that would separate. There was a near fulfillment. There was a far distant fulfillment. Isaiah is dealing with real threats in his day. Something was coming down. Judgment was happening. The Assyrian hordes were knocking at the door. Isaiah is referring to coming judgment. He's also, I think, referring to events not just with the Assyrians of his day, but about a hundred some years later, after Assyria moved off the world stage, it was the Babylonians who arose in the whole geopolitical sphere of things in the Middle East. And it was the Babylonians that ultimately would come against Judah and Jerusalem. 586 B.C., and destroy Jerusalem and take the people of Judah away into Babylon into captivity. And Isaiah is speaking of, in that prophetic voice, not just of events that were happening in his day, 
but of what would take place in about 100 years or so later. But there was another mountain peak way, way in the distance that Isaiah is talking about as well. Events in a far distant future, events that have not yet even taken place in our day of 2018. A day that Jesus described as a great tribulation. Now, how do I know that? There are two passages that I haven't referred to yet that are bookends to the passage we just read. The first bookend is the opening verses of chapter 2. So go back to chapter 2, verse 1. Isaiah writes, The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, now it will come about that in the last days, in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Isaiah is seeing a vision of the last days, a time indicator here that tells us that the ultimate fulfillment of what we have just read is yet to come at the end of world history as we know it, at that time of the coming Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords in his ultimate glory. In the last days, something terrible is going to happen to the Jewish people. And yet something glorious is going to happen. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. And the concept of a mountain the, the, um, uh, in the biblical language would, would have to do with a, a seat of government or of rule or reign. The mountain, the, the reign of, uh, of the house of the Lord, he's speaking of Jerusalem, will be raised above all the other hills, and all the nations will stream to the mountain of the Lord, to the holy mountain, to, to Jerusalem. Verse 3, and many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations. He will render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Now, folks, if you've read history at all, you know that never in the history of man since this was written has this been fulfilled. Certainly not in our time, as the Institute for Economics and Peace will surely attest. But a day is coming. A day is coming when they're gonna, the nations are going to hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, and they will not war against each other. They will not learn war anymore. Worldwide 
peace is coming. Now, if we take this passage at face value, there's no time that this has ever been fulfilled in the history of man. It is yet future. It will take place, Isaiah tells us, in the last days. But just prior to that time of peace, in that day, judgment will fall as we read, starting in verse, chapter 2, verse 6, through chapter 4, verse 1. In that day, the pride of man will be brought low. In that day, God's wrath will fall upon his people, and it will cleanse out and purify the people of God. The other bookend to this passage over in chapter 4 Continues. Chapter 4, verse 2. Here's the other half of the bookend. In that day, what day? In this latter day, in the last days. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Now, probably in most of your translations, the word branch begins with a capital letter. Your translators are telling us they're understanding that this is referring to the coming Messiah. Elsewhere, we won't take the time to turn there, and we'll see it later in Isaiah. This is referring to the coming King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's called the branch. The root of Jesse will rise. And in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth, and I, I think even the F and fruit could be capitalized probably also referring to Messiah. The fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. And it will come about, verse 3, that he who was left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem would be called holy. And everyone who is recorded for the life in Jerusalem. And when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst when God's work of cleansing and judgment is complete by the spirit and judgment of the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion, over, the, over all her assemblies, a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. And that harkens back to the children of Israel who were being led out and the presence of God was with them, the cloud by day, the fire by night. For over all, the glory will be a canopy, and there will be a shelter to give shade from the heat of day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. A day is coming. Something is going to happen when the branch returns. Now, 2,000 years ago, as potentially hundreds of thousands of Jewish people were assembled in Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover, all of a sudden, the, the crowd begins to erupt. Palm branches are being waved. And the people break out in song because they see in fulfillment of, of Zechariah's prophecy, behold, here he comes, the son of David the king riding lowly 
on a, on a colt of a donkey. And as he approaches Jerusalem, they, they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna. And this was the hour the king had come. And yet, as we know, five days later, he's on the cross. He's crucified. What had happened? The branch, as the palm branches are being waved, is entering Jerusalem. And now he's dead? World peace did not come that day 2,000 years ago. What had happened? Was Isaiah wrong? Was the prophetic word false? The branch had come. And now, all the nations of the world were to stream to Jerusalem as he, as he teaches the law of righteousness and, and, and holiness. World peace is supposed to come, and, and the, the nations will, will sit at his feet and, be, and learn his ways. But they crucified him. Well, there are 62 chapters in Isaiah left, and so we're going to have to develop this over the weeks to come because Isaiah has a whole lot more to fill in the pieces. God was not finished, but his eternal plan for the ages was not thwarted. In fact, it was being perfectly fulfilled. Now, Isaiah shares, I think, three important principles or applications for his people 2,800 years ago, and they are as relevant and as applicable and meant for us today as much as it was for the people 2,800 years ago. Three important applications. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, after proclaiming about the last days and this world peace that's coming, in verse 5, Isaiah gives this application. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Here's the first application. Be careful how you live. It's as if Isaiah is telling the people, this is yet future. God will reign supreme over this earth and all the nations of the world will bow before him. But you don't have to wait to the end of the age. Come. Let's walk in the light of the Lord now. Be careful how you live. In the context here, he's talking about being careful how we live as we walk in the light, and the light is the light of his truth the revealed truth of God as it will be taught one day from Jerusalem and all the nations will, will bow before it. One day that's going to come. But now, even in the darkness of this age, of this time, the call to God's people is, come, let's walk in the light of his truth. 
The psalmist wrote in Psalm 43, 3, Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling place. I want to be led by the light. Psalm 119, verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Come, be careful how we live. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior this morning, this is a call even for us. God has given us his word, a revelation of himself. He's exposed his heart to how he wants us to live. The sad reality is, and John will tell us this in his first epistle, sadly, Christians can walk in darkness and out of fellowship with God. And he's inviting us. He's imploring us. Be careful how you live in these days. Walk in the light. Know his word, follow his word, study his word, and grow in the grace of the knowledge of the Lord. Let it lead you in these dark times. Second application that Isaiah gives us. Be careful who you trust. In chapter 2, verse 22, he says, Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? Pride goeth before the fall. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust your own imaginations. Don't trust in man. How many times this past week were we given an opportunity to cast ourselves upon the Lord and say, Lord, I can't do this. I can't figure this out. I can't. How many times this past week were we given an opportunity to trust the Lord in whatever the situation was as opposed to trusting ourselves? A challenge at home? Something happened at work, school, a financial crisis, a world in turmoil as you read the newspaper articles, a government in the United States in disarray and, and all of it. Who, who are we trusting in? And the exhortation, 2,800 years ago, but it's living, powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the Word of God that tells us today, be careful who you trust. The very first sin, the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and gets them to put their eyes off of God, onto themselves. That's pride. C.S. Lewis said it's the greatest of all sins. He once wrote... A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you'll never see what's above you. The pride of man, I can do this, I can do this. It blinds us. It clouds our vision of the sufficiency of God. And God's people are called in good times or bad times. Every moment, every step of our life, to be lived in total dependency and trust of him. What is man? Why should we be esteemed? Why should we think more highly of ourselves than we ought? 
it clouds our vision of his greatness. And we stop trusting him and in ourselves. There's a third application and encouragement that Isaiah gave 2,800 years ago. And it's simply this. Be encouraged. He's going to make it all right one day. For the branch is coming. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And in the darkness of our times, the encouragement that we must hold on to is that God has a plan that he is on, that he is fulfilling, that he is unveiling. And even today, right now, March 25th, 2018, in this tick of the clock moment, right now, he's fulfilling that plan. He has not abdicated the eternal throne. He is sovereignly fulfilling and bringing his plan to its ultimate consummation. In that day, it'll happen. And one day he will say, enough. And Jesus Christ will return to this earth, not riding a donkey, but a glorious, powerful presence with the people of God. And the heavens will open, and he will descend with a shout, the voice of the archangel, as the dead in Christ rise. And he will vanquish the foes, and he will reign supreme on this earth in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. A day is coming when all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas, as Habakkuk 2.14 tells us. And so be encouraged. Be encouraged. Live in the light. Live carefully. And trust him and him alone. He's got a plan. He's right on time. Let's pray. Our Father, I'm not sure if these words of Isaiah provided any encouragement 2,800 years ago. I'm sure there was a remnant that your word said that, that there, there were some faithful few who heard these words. And whether it was the Assyrians who were breathing down their neck, murdering and plundering, and they simply fell to their knees and said, Lord, have thine own way. Or a hundred some years later, as the Babylonians were coming and finishing the job of, of wiping out the people and bringing them into captivity, there was a faithful few. There was Daniel, there's Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego. There was, there was faithful few who got on their knees and said, Lord, no matter what, we're going to walk in the light. We're going to trust you and we're going to wait for the branch to come. And Father, in this day, I pray that there are more than a faithful few. I would pray that in this congregation, there are people who are not going to trust in their own abilities and, and, and designs of how to solve their issues. But Father, we will be a people who will, who will walk in the light in spite of the darkness of the day as we take heart and take courage in knowing one day, Father,
the heavens will open and the branch, the king, the fulfillment of all the prophecies will return and make it right once again. Thank you, Father, that your word is true. Encourage our hearts. In Christ's name I pray, amen.